Didn't they do a terrific job? Thanks, y'all. Thanks, y'all, so much for your leadership and worship. What a wonderful experience to be able to come and enjoy that week in and week out and be led to the Lord. Um, we are in a series. I'm seeing, I don't know if y'all know this or not, but sort of. Claire is sitting on the front row right now. Not, not really, I'm sorry. FaceTime, FaceTime. <laughs> She's FaceTiming. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> anyway. Um, so, hi, sweetie. Good to see you. Um, we hope to see her here in the coming week. She had some blood clots this week, and uh, anyhow, the doctor said, keep your foot up, not allowed out of the house for a little while. So, we'll get there. We're getting there. Um, but we'll, we'll enjoy that again in a couple weeks. Anyway, let me, let me, let me start over again. How about that? Um, I had a professor in college who, uh, so this is, this is almost 30 years ago, who told a joke. And I've been waiting for 30 years <laughs> to share this joke. And finally, today, I'm going to have the opportunity. All right? So uh, this is going to be a terrific joke, by the way. I just want to go ahead and let you know. So we are going to meet Job's three friends. One of them's name is Eliphaz. The second is the shortest man in the Bible, Bildad the Shuhite. right? 30 years, 30 years. I've waited on that. And then the last one is a fellow by the name of Zophar. So anyhow, so we'll meet Job's three friends, and they'll have some dialogue back and forth between them. In Job chapter 2 and verse 13, it says that these three friends all gathered together, um, and they uh, came to see Job uh, in the aftermath of all these terrible things that had happened in Job's life. And so Job's sitting out there on this ash heap behind the house in the garbage pile, um, and he's got all these terrible things that have happened to him. And so they come just to comfort their friend. And it says in verse 13 that they came and they sat with him for seven days and for seven nights. And nobody really had anything to say. They just felt like, you know, the best thing for us to do is just to be here with Job. Now, I wish that they had continued along that same line of thinking, right? That they had not opened their mouths, that they had not shared any of their wisdom. Uh, but they felt like after several days of being there that they needed to try and help the situation along. They needed to explain to Job why it is that these terrible things have happened and why this, uh, what, what the solution might be to resolving this matter and being able to move forward in life. So what we'll do today is we're going to um, look at the conversation between these folks, between Job and his three friends, and then also we'll hear Job's rebuttal back to them and say, look guys, I'm not sure that I'm buying this perspective that you are giving. So um, Job chapter 21 is our text for today. This is actually captures Job's rebuttal to them. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word, Job chapter 21, verses 7 through 10. Let's read from God's word together. It says, and why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence, and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail, their cow calves, and does not miscarry. You may be seated. Thank you so much. So we're going to come back to that. This is, again, Job's rebuttal. We're going to come back to that here in just a little bit. But before we get into Job's rebuttal, we want to see, well, what is it that he is pushing back against? Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can flip over there or just follow along with me on the screen. Job chapter 5 and verse 6. This is the first of Job's friends, Eliphaz. Um, to speak. And so Eliphaz says, hey, look, Job, after seven days of sitting here with you, uh, this is why I think uh, all of these terrible things have happened. He says in verse 6, 
Uh, For affliction, he says, does not come from dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. In other words, Eliphaz believes that affliction and trouble are the result of some, or not, they're not random uh, events, but rather that they are the instruments of God that God uses to punish, that God uses to bring about um, some sort of, uh, to, to reward wrongdoing, if you would. End of verse 17, Eliphaz closes his initial arguments by saying, despise not, Job, the discipline of the Lord. So, jo- so Eliphaz, from his perspective, says, Job, there's no other rational reason for all of these things happening and all of these things happening at once other than that you have got some egregious sin going on in your life. And so that's his explanation of it. And so he's trying to invite his, bro- his friend, his brother, to... to um, to repent of his sins. Well, it's interesting as you listen to all of these arguments that his three friends bring, they all are pretty much bringing the same argument, just packaged in different ways. Let's take a look at Zophar, friend number two. Zophar says, uh, Job chapter 11, end of verse six, he says, know then, Job, that God exacts of you less than what your guilt actually deserves. So from Zophar's perspective, he's seeing all these terrible things that is happening. He's saying, hey, Job, you know what? What you're experiencing is actually mercy. Really? Okay. How is that? He says, well, because God's not even visiting on you half as much as all of the things that you actually deserve. So these guys look at Job's situation, and they come in with an underlying commitment. And their underlying commitment is that the pain and suffering and misery that is happening in Job's life are the repercussions of Job having sinned. So they see him as a, as a superlative sinner, if you would, and that's the only explanation they can come up with as to why he's experiencing all this terrible stuff. Now, Job pushes back against this. Uh, he's not convinced, and this thing kind of comes to a head when Eliphaz just lays into Job toward the end of their dialogue back and forth. He's convinced that because of his predetermined conclusions that in order for Job to suffer to the extent that Job is suffering, that he must be some sort of closet superlative sinner in order to experience all this terrible stuff. So he says to Job, Job chapter 22, beginning at verse 5, is not your evil abundant? It has to be. There's no way you'd be experiencing all this if you didn't have abundant evil in your life. He says, there is, a, and stripped and, uh, so there is no end to your iniquities. Verse 6, for you must have exacted pledges of your brothers for nothing. In other words, for no good reason of all, at all, you must have been exacting uh, you know, uh, pledges from people, taking money from people, and stripped them naked of their clothing. You must have done that. Verse 7, and you must have given no water to the weary to drink, and you must have withheld bread from the hungry. Verse 9, you must have sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless were crushed by your hands. Verse 10, therefore, this is why snares are all around you. Job, this is the explanation we've been trying now for 28 chapters to explain to you that the terrible things that are happening in your life are happening because you are a superlative sinner. There's no other possible explanation according to Eliphaz's worldview. Well, Job's not buying into any of this. He contends, look, guys, there is no way that I could be as bad as the, the things that have happened to me. I mean, if, it, if God is meeting out eye for an eye here, tooth for a tooth, I, there, there's just no way I haven't been this bad. Y'all know me. How could, you, how could you possibly insinuate, knowing what the kind of character that I have, the kind of reputation that I have in the community, that I would be this terrible to warrant all this bad stuff? So we arrive at Job chapter 21, which we read earlier. Job lays out his argument, argument, explaining why his three friends' underlying assumption is wrong. Let's take a look. Job chapter 21, verse 7. Job argues, why do the wicked live? Seriously, if we live in a just world where God's just meeting out, you know, 
what we deserve and he's just issuing out punishments and that's the reason why pain and suffering happen in the world, then why do the wicked continue to live? Why do they reach old age? How can you all possibly explain this? If the world is fair, if the world is just as you seem to think it is, then how can you explain that the wicked even grow mighty in power? Again, if God is there out there punishing wickedness and all suffering is a result of God punishing wickedness, then this should not happen. Verse 8, how do you explain that the offspring of the wicked are established in their presence? So the children of mobsters, right, they're going off to school, and they're having nice little lives, and their parents are having nice little blessed lives. How do you explain all this? Verse 9, explain to me, Job says, how their houses are safe from fear and how no rod of God is upon them. Like, we don't see them being punished. Y'all look out the door, right? Go to town. You'll see this happening all over the place. People who blatantly ignore God's moral law, and yet they prosper. How do you explain that according to your worldview? It doesn't sound like your theory's holding any water, and it doesn't sound like good advice to me. Um, so look at verse 10. He says, continues on. He says, the bull belonging to the wicked person breeds without, uh, without fail, and still in verse 10, and the cow calves and does not miscarry. He says, think about it like this. Farmer Brown, who, who we all know, is this farmer in town who is, uh, you know, he's, he's a home-wrecking guy. He's a dope-dealing guy. He's a hard-living guy. He's an alcoholic. But whenever he breeds his cows, it seems like everything just works out swimmingly for Farmer Brown. But then you take Farmer Smith over here and Farmer Smith's family and how they are at church every Sunday and how they pray their prayers every night and how they turn to the Lord and they read the scriptures and they help out their neighbor and they try to do right by the poor. But over the years of cow breeding, they have had plenty of cows that have miscarried and they've had plenty of times when the, when the, when the breeding did not take at all. Job says, you all know Farmer Brown, you know Farmer Smith, and you see the outcomes of each of their farms, yet you would still hold to your principle that the wicked suffer and the righteous are blessed? That that's the way the world works. And so Job says, I take issue with that. Now this debate again rolls along for 28 chapters. 28 chapters of the Bible are dedicated to this debate over whether or not bad things can be interpreted as punishments from God. The perspective of Job's three friends, that's the way it is. From the perspective of Job, perhaps in some ways, but you can't account for all the pain and suffering in life as punishment of God. So what do, we, what do we do with this? Well, I've got two New Testament passages that give us a little bit more clarity on the issue that help us answer the question. The first comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul writes, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. What Paul is describing here is what I would call the law of consequences. Basically, he is saying that what goes around comes around. That sooner or later, God will make sure that our actions catch up to us. Sooner or later, bad deeds will be rewarded with bad returns. However, what Paul is not suggesting, what Paul is not saying here, is that those bad returns represent the ultimate justice of Almighty God. There's a difference, and Paul is just making the point that crime may pay for a little while, but eventually it's going to catch up to you, and God will see to it that it catches up to you. That's the point that he's making here. He is not trying to, he does not want us to confuse uh, our crime catching up to us with the ultimate justice of God. There's a difference. Y'all with me so far? So one is the law of consequences. One is the ultimate justice of God. There's some overlap, but you can't conflate the two. Um, for example, how are the sins of an alcoholic father measured out in the destroyed lives of his children? How is that justice? I mean, the kids are innocent. What did they do to deserve any of that? They didn't do anything. How is the sins of a rapist 
visited out in years and years of counseling and shame experienced by his victims, and he only spent 10 years in jail. How is that justice? How can you say that God saw justice there? With the statement, we reap what we sow, all Paul is saying is that what goes around eventually does come back around. But again, please do not confuse that with the ultimate justice of God. Now, one other passage that speaks to this issue comes from John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, Jesus is with his disciples, and they pass by this guy who's been born blind. John chapter 9 and verse 1. Here it is. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, verse 2. And Jesus' disciples asked, asked, Rabbi, who sinned? Talk about the man who's been born blind. Who sinned? This guy or his parents? Because somebody did, right, that he would be born blind. So their assumption is, uh, just like the three friends of Job, that the reason this guy is blind is because either this guy has sinned or his parents have sinned. In other words, all bad things happen because somebody sinned, because God is punishing sin. And so that's the lens that they look at all of this through. Jesus corrects this fallacy. He says in verse 3, you fools. Doesn't sound like Jesus agrees with their perspective on this, does it? It was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus healed the man born blind. Now, what I want for us to gather from this passage is that Jesus does not agree with the disciples' conclusion that all bad things are the result of somebody having sinned. Sometimes, as I shared several weeks ago, sometimes the reason why bad things happen is because we live in a fallen world. And that's it's just part of living in this world. I mean, heart disease happens, cancer happens, all sorts of things happen. And that's part of the reason why we experience those things is because we don't live in the Garden of Eden. Sometimes those bad things happen because a man's born blind so that God could be glorified, so that God could advance his purposes in the world. Sometimes God needs someone to go to the cross. He needs suffering to happen so that he can be glorified, so that his purposes can be accomplished in the world. So while we may witness what goes around coming back around, let us not jump to conclusions assuming that, that that is the ultimate justice of God. And certainly let us not assume that because someone is suffering, that they deserve it. All right, well, that is our text for today and some initial thoughts on this subject matter. And so that means it's time for us to stop and ask our most important question, what difference does all this make to my life? Let's see if we can answer that. We have a saying in life, and it goes like this, well, he got what he deserved. You ever heard anybody say that? Probably. Maybe you've thought it, maybe you've said it, maybe you've observed it. So where we say, you know, she got what she deserved. Somebody was, had been doing something wrong and eventually came back around on them. With that statement, we are acknowledging the law of consequences that what goes around does oftentimes come back around. But sometimes we are also suggesting that justice has been served. Well, they got what they deserved, so justice has been served. Friends, I take issue with that. Job takes issue with that. The Lord Jesus takes issue with that. Flip over in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16 and verse 19, or again, you can follow along with us on the screen. This is a story of Lazarus that Jesus tells of this guy named Lazarus. He ends up in heaven, and then there's a rich man that Lazarus knew while he was here on the earth, and the rich man ends up in hell. And so he writes about this, Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day, had a really good life. Verse 20. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with swords. We get the impression from Jesus' story that the rich man ignored the poor man. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, that is, carried to heaven. Um, the rich man also died and was buried, verse 23, and in Hades, that is hell, he was being in torment. He lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So just a quick time out here. So we've got this 
poor man who's in heaven. We've got this rich man who's in hell. The rich man's not in hell because he's rich. Let's be very clear about that. The rich man is in hell because he didn't trust God during his time here in this life. The poor man is in heaven not because he's poor. The poor man's in heaven because he did trust God, put his faith in God during his life. That's why each of them is where they are. Um, it says in verse 23 there that the rich man was in Hades and hell being tormented. He lifted his eyes toward Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And so he begins to ask for some sort of relief from the experience that he's having there in Hades and hell. Jesus gives us a glimpse into the inhabitants of hell. He says in verse 23 that the rich man was in torment. In verse 24, he says, And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water just so that I might cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. Friends, God's solution, get this, God's solution to the problem of injustice in the world is not prison sentences. That may solve a problem temporarily for us here on the earth. It may make us feel a little bit better in the, in the, in the meantime. But God's solution to the problem of injustice in this world is a place called hell. That's how God solves the problem of injustice. God's solution to that problem is hell. Hell is where ultimate justice is dispensed. Hell is God's solution to that, to that problem. We, what we want is to see justice served in this life. We want to see it with our own eyes. We want to see somebody pay, right, for what they've done. And so, uh, but that's not, in God's estimation, where ultimate justice is dispensed, is administered. Um, people getting what they deserve, friends, for the most part, does not really happen in this life. It doesn't. Instead, it happens at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, John, the writer of the Revelation, says, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12, looking at the end of time, he has this glimpse out into the future, he says, Revelation chapter 20, and verse 12, John writes, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done during their life. Now, friends, that is the bad news. That God is waiting, hanging in the balance, waiting for us to leave this life and so that his ultimate justice can be dispensed. The good news is that through the death of Jesus on the cross, our sin debt has been paid in full. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, Paul writes, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, perhaps you've been looking at Christians and thinking there's just some, I just don't know that I can buy into all of that. Think about the risk you're taking. Seriously. You know, a smart person hearing this, knowing that they could have an eternity of separation from God and an eternity of, of torment, or just bring me a drop of water just to give me a, a smidgen of relief, to know that you could avoid that by putting your faith and your trust in Jesus' blood shed on the cross, you know, a smart person would avail themselves of that information. Just something for you to think about. For the rest of us who have entered into this relationship with Jesus, what difference does this make to us? Well, one of the great harms that we can do to the church of Christ and to the people of God, to God's reputation in the world, is to suggest to someone who is suffering 
that the reason for their suffering is because God is punishing them. Friends, that is unthinkable. That is insensitive. So if the urge ever strikes you to tell someone, you know, God's judging you because of your sin, or you know you probably deserve what you're getting, friends, we would be of much greater help and much greater comfort if we just sat there and were just there for our friend. Last thought, knowing that justice is in God's hand, that God promises, Romans chapter 12 and verse 19, that vengeance is mine, I will repay. Friends, this should give us the freedom to love people who, may, who we may think don't deserve our love. This should give us the freedom to turn the other cheek. This should give us the liberty to, to love those who treat us poorly. Jesus says, you know what? At the end of the day, don't worry about an eye for an eye. Don't worry about a tooth for a tooth. I'll take care of it. God promises, I will repay. I'll take care of it. Friends, this is a game changer. If you've been withholding love from someone or withholding forgiveness because you want to make sure that they get what they deserve, friends, this should be tremendous freedom for you to surrender that person over to a God who promised he will take care of it. And may I add, that he will do a much better job of it than you or I possibly could. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, thank you for this opportunity to think about injustice in the world. As a Christian, as a Bible-believing person of faith in Christ, we do not have to run around this world trying to right all the wrongs. Because we believe and we know that there is a God who is watching, a God who is recording, a God who is taking notes, and who will, in your time, in your way, who will bring about true justice. Lord, if there are those in our lives that we've been withholding forgiveness from, if there are those in our lives that we've been withholding love from, let us release them into your hands today. Lord, if there are people in our lives that are going through difficulty and struggle, may we realize today the best thing that we can do is just to be there with them, to love on them, to comfort them. God, we thank you for this table. It reminds us of the sacrifice that was paid so that we could have an eternity with you, so that we can approach death without fear. We can put our faith and our trust and your shed blood, Jesus, and your broken body. Receive the forgiveness of sins that you offer and escape the due penalty that is deserved to us. Lord, in these quiet moments, speak and minister to our hearts, we pray. In Christ's holy name, amen.